In this poetic interlude, Solomon is challenging us to consider our own initial response to an invitation to learn. Do you immediately resent the implication that you may not be perfect in your wisdom? Then you have taken another step down the road that leads to destruction. Repent of that now and change your ways. Learn to be open to rebuke and correction. Recognize the privilege of learning and growing through exposure to the wisdom of the ages. Think long term. Remember that one day you will stand before your maker. Be eager to embrace everything and everyone that can better prepare you for that day. Each time you respond positively to correction and instruction, you take another step forward on the road that leads to life. It's not just about the first step. It's about every step. Listen again to what Kidner says. Choice is seen ripening into character and so into destiny, close quote. A human being is the product of a thousand choices, not just one. So keep your heart soft, keep your ears open, and keep your stomach full of the delicacies that may be found on woman wisdom's table. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. A human being is the product of a thousand choices, and choices over time ripen into character, and character into destiny. I'm sure we've all seen that process work out in real time in our own lives and in the lives of other people. Choices matter, and the Bible often warns us to make our choice in the direction of wisdom and life. The house of wisdom and the road beyond it that leads to life and stability is not nearly as crowded as the house of pleasure and folly, but it is the house whose architect and builder is the Lord. Old Testament and New, we are presented with similar choices, and here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 9. I mentioned in the introduction episode that we don't really get into anything that really sounds like a proper proverb until chapter 10, and that's true. The book begins with a brief preamble, which is followed by 12 poems about wisdom, 10 from the father to his son, and then two in the voice of woman wisdom. All of these poems are commending the banquet of Proverbs that is to come. We get into those immediately starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Chapter 9, which we're reading here, is generally considered the epilogue to the prologue. It serves as a summary to all that has preceded while also establishing a controlling metaphor for the content that follows. In chapter 9, two women prepare their homes for a feast. Woman wisdom prepares her house, and woman folly prepares her house. They set their tables, they make everything ready, and then they stand out front and invite travelers in. That's the metaphor. There are two houses, two feasts, two women. If you go into the right house and consume the right meal, you will live and prosper. If you go into the wrong house and consume the wrong meal, you will die. The terms are exactly that stark. So as I mentioned, this epilogue does rather neatly summarize everything we've heard thus far, while also serving to establish a controlling metaphor for what we're about to hear in the chapters that follow. Most of the Proverbs, particularly in chapter 10, are presented in some kind of binary format. So just flip forward in your Bible for a second. Look at Proverbs chapter 10. 
The first proverb there in Proverbs 10 verse 1 says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That's a contrast. The wise son makes his dad glad. The foolish son makes his mama sad. That's a binary presentation. That's a further way of saying, if you go into the right house and consume the right meal, then you will become the sort of person who makes his parents proud. But if you go into the wrong house and consume the wrong meal, then you will cause your parents deep regret. That's the general idea. In chapter 9, we're being told to anticipate a great feast of wisdom in the chapters that follow. We're being invited into the house of insight and understanding. And we're being told that if we come in and eat our fill, we will become healthy, successful, honorable people who will be a blessing to our society and a source of joy to our friends and loved ones. But we're being warned that not everyone will join us. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, Eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. In these opening six verses, we're told that wisdom has built her house. She has put her principles to the test. Her beliefs and practices are on display. Come and check her out. She has laid down quite a feast. There will be food, meat, and choice wine. That's the basic setup. Now, you used to hear in certain circles that she mixed her wine, that phrase, meant she mixed her wine with water so as to dilute it. But that is to read the Bible through a 20th century American lens. According to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 22, adding water to wine is deceitful and deplorable. The fact that woman wisdom mixed her wine, according to Bruce Walkey, means here that she added something like honey and or herbs to make the wine more spicy, potent, and enjoyable, closed quote. The point is that she's prepared an excellent feast, the sort of feast that you would tell all your friends about, the sort of spread you could never afford to put on yourself, the sort of thing you imagine Fortune 500 companies are serving at their board retreats and executive functions. That's the idea here. In terms of her invitation, it is sent out specifically to young people who are simple or untaught. She is looking for aimless youths who have not yet come under discipline. To them, she says, leave your simple ways and live. Come in and feast on my bounty. Receive instruction in the ways of wisdom and life. In verses 7 to 12, there is a poetic interlude wherein the composer of the poem comments on the various ways people respond to such an invitation. The poet, we presume Solomon, says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So here, in between these contrasting pictures of the house built by woman wisdom and the house built by woman folly, we have a brief discussion about how people respond to these various invitations. Some people are offended by the mere suggestion that they might have something to learn, whereas other people are grateful for the opportunity and respond with joy. It really all depends upon the inner disposition of the heart. The one who fears the Lord will be eager to grow and improve. The one who is self-satisfied thinks only of the injury done to his pride. Derek Kidner comments on this poetic interlude, saying, Its content corrects the impression that men are saved or lost merely through an isolated, impulsive decision. The choice is seen ripening into character and so into destiny. That is so important for us to understand. In this poetic interlude, Solomon is challenging us to consider our own initial response to an invitation to learn. Do you immediately resent the implication that you may not be perfect in your wisdom? Then you have taken another step down the road that leads to destruction. Repent of that now and change your ways. Learn to be open to rebuke and correction. Recognize the privilege of learning and growing through exposure to the wisdom of the ages. Think long term. Remember that one day you will stand before your maker. Be eager to embrace everything and everyone that can better prepare you for that day. Each time you respond positively to correction and instruction, you take another step forward on the road that leads to life. It's not just about the first step. It's about every step. Listen again to what Kidner says. Choice is seen ripening into character and so into destiny, close quote. A human being is the product of a thousand choices, not just one. So keep your heart soft, keep your ears open, and keep your stomach full of the delicacies that may be found on woman wisdom's table. That's the lesson being offered here. Now, most commentators also identify a secondary purpose in this poetic interlude. There's a lesson here for those entrusted with the invitation for people to come in and learn as well. Remember, woman wisdom has just sent out her servants into the streets. And of course, this reminds the Bible reader of the parable told by Jesus about the banquet prepared by a king for his son. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, close quote. So here, Jesus is doing that whole greater than Solomon thing. He's taking the basic shape and theme of this poetic interlude and transposing it into a New Testament key. In both cases, a very generous invitation has been extended. But in both cases, some people respond to that invitation with hostility. Now, why is that? In the poetic interlude in Proverbs 9, the answer seems to be, it depends on who they are at root, 
scoffers have no fear of the Lord in their heart. They are arrogant and self-satisfied. And so they receive this invitation actually as a rebuke. If you're inviting me in to feast on your wisdom, then you must assume that I need wisdom. You must think I'm stupid. They become indignant and hostile. They begin to mock and revile those who have offered them this invitation. The poet here advises the one making the invitation to move on. Interestingly, Jesus says the same thing to his envoys. In Matthew 7, 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Close quote. In Matthew 10, 14, he says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Remember, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. So he's not going to tell his disciples to do something that the Bible says is foolish. The Bible seems to be saying that if you are in the position of a messenger offering a generous invitation on behalf of another, then you mustn't be unduly delayed by arguing incessantly with unresponsive people. Extend your invitation broadly, and should you meet with mockery and hostility, move on. Alan P. Ross says here, One may perceive the potential to learn in such a person, but if met with such scorn, the effort should be abandoned. Old Testament and New, that is wisdom. It is an act of utter folly and unfaithfulness to continue banging your head against a wall when there are so many other people out there who would be very eager to respond to the invitation you are making. So, hearers and messengers need to be wise. Alan P. Ross provides an excellent summary of all that we've learned so far. He says, in the final analysis, those who fear the Lord, add to their learning, and receive discipline will look forward to a long and productive life, Close quote. Pastor Paul, I'd like to jump in here if I can. I agree with everything that we've been talking about here. I believe that some people are going to be receptive and open to the message that we bring, and some people aren't. Some people are going to hate and ridicule us and say that our message is absolute foolishness, and I agree that there's no point in banging our heads against the wall, so to speak, when that happens. We should be wise, shake the dust off our feet, and move on. Life is short, time is short, and the stakes are eternally high. I totally agree. But that raises a bit of a question in my mind. How does a person get to be the sort of person who is inclined to respond to the invitation of these messengers of life and wisdom. The Bible seems to be saying to these messengers that some people are going to respond and some people aren't. But why is that? If the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, then why does anyone listen? It, it almost seems like God has to do something first to create in that person a listening ear. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very wise and insightful question. In Romans 1.18, Paul says that human beings in their natural fallen state suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So according to the Bible, we don't hear because we don't want to hear. Human beings have been sticking their fingers in their ears for so long that we have permanently plugged that hole. And so now we can't hear. But as this chapter is making clear, some people are going to hear. They're going to hear the invitation. They're going to come into the house of wisdom. They're going to walk in the way of life. 
So how in the world is that happening? And the answer is by the grace and mercy of God. Old Testament and New, that fact is acknowledged. David in Psalm 40 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. So David says, you know, it wasn't ultimately my sacrifices and my offerings that God wanted. It was my listening. So he gave me an open ear. That's grace. And it was the same for Peter in the New Testament. When he made his big declaration in Matthew 16, being the first of the disciples to figure out that Jesus was the Christ, the Lord said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, Blessed are you, not smartest are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So Jesus says to Peter, The fact that you've heard what I'm saying, and have begun to walk on the path that leads to life, means that the Father has been at work in your life. He's been healing and opening your ear. And that's why you've responded positively the way you have. So Old Testament and New, grace comes first. God has to do some surgery on you in order for you to be in a position to hear and respond the way you should. But of course, how do we get to be one of those people? Exactly. Well, all we can know for sure is what the Bible tells us, right? And, and in Romans 9, there's a long list of things that don't explain why some people receive this grace and others don't. Paul says, for example, it has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with social standing. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with your righteousness, right? Some of these choices are, are made. Some of these graces are given before people have done anything, as in the example of Jacob and Esau. So it's none of those things. But then he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. He just says that there is no injustice on God's part. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's Romans 9, 15 to 16. So we can't know. We don't know. We just know that it begins with the mercy and compassion of God. But we also know that people are responsible for whether they listen or not. After all, right, you're the one who stuck his fingers in his ears. You're the, you're the one who was so committed to not hearing the word of God that you ruptured your eardrums, sticking your fingers into your ear as far as they would possibly go. So that's on you. Human beings are morally responsible. But they need help and mercy from God in order to hear and, and respond the way they should. So what, what that all says to me, is that if you're listening today and you feel like you aren't in a place to hear the call of God and, and you aren't in a position to respond positively to the invitation to the banquet, then you should pray to God right now and ask him to have mercy on your soul and to do a miracle of healing in your ear. That's the best way I can think of for you to respond to this mystery, this conundrum that you rightly identify here in the scriptures. Mm, yeah, well, amen to that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. In verses 13 to 18 now, we have the contrasting picture of woman Folly sitting outside her house and extending her invitation to the banquet that she has prepared. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, 
that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So in contrast to the great noble lady in the first depiction, woman folly is here described as loud. The New King James Version renders verse 13, a foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. I like that. Woman folly is clamorous. She is a noisy gong. A person like that gets attention, sure, but ultimately she has nothing to say. There's an appearance of something there, but underneath there is absolutely nothing. And only the very gullible are taken in by her appeal. Her sales pitch is quite remarkable. She says that stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So her appeal is to the worst aspects of human nature. Derek Kidner, again, is marvelous here. He says, Eve had to be convinced that the sweetness would survive the stealing. We have fallen far enough to be persuaded that it depends on it, closed quote. Kidner is saying that to the fallen person, all that is forbidden seems good. Woman folly makes no effort to decorate her home. Her preparations pale in comparison to woman wisdom. She doesn't send out servants. She simply sits in a chair in front of her house and bawls like a street vendor at passersby. Her hook is baited with nothing more enticing than the promise that her wares are stolen and that her delicacies may be eaten in secret. People who are attracted to such an invitation deserve the fate they meet inside. As Jesus said in John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What you choose tells the truth about who you are. So choose life, choose light, turn away from the house of woman folly and embrace wisdom. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode that many scholars believe that these introductory poems are intending to be heard in two parallel ways. On the one hand, this is a straightforward appeal to come into the house of wisdom and feast on the proverbs and maxims that will shortly follow. On the other hand, this is an appeal to reject the whore of Babylon and to walk in the ways of the covenant. Notice that both of these women built their homes at the highest point of the city. Woman wisdom sends out her messengers from the highest places in the town. That's in verse 3. Woman folly takes her seat on the front porch of her house, which is on the highest places of the town. So these women are neighbors. Tremper Longman III says here, In the ancient Near East, only one house is built on the high place of a city, and that is the temple. It is not a stretch, therefore, to suggest that wisdom is not only the personification of Yahweh's wisdom, but also of Yahweh himself, close quote. He goes on to say about woman folly. She too represents deity, but in her case, she stands for all the pagan gods and goddesses who desire to lure Israel away from the true God. She stands for Marduk, Baal, Ishtar, Anat, Asherah, Chemosh, and Moloch. And the list goes on and on, close quote. Thus, on whatever level you want to hear it, Proverbs 9 is an invitation to choose the path that leads to life. That's the message of the entire preamble. And that's a message that is remarkably easy to transpose into a New Testament key. At the end of the New Testament, we find a very similar summary and invitation. The Apostle John says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation 22, 17. The house is ready. The door is open. The table is set. And whosoever will may come. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Pastor Paul, I love where this particular episode lands. I love the imagery you mentioned here of the Spirit and the Bride saying, Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let them drink the water of life without price. I love that. I love the idea of the free and open invitation to the banquet. And I love how it doesn't contradict the fact that you mentioned earlier that we need grace from God to respond to that invitation correctly. You can believe in both of those truths simultaneously, can't you? Absolutely, and so you should. They aren't contradictory in the least, and they are both clearly taught in the Bible. People are blind, spiritually speaking, so they don't see the open door that is right there in front of them. People are lost, spiritually speaking, so they don't see the way home that God has provided. And so they need grace. They need spiritual healing. They need their eyes open and their ears unstopped, so that they can hear, see, and believe. So there is a sense in which grace has to come before faith. Yeah, there is. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. You have to be healed of your spiritual blindness and rebelliousness in order to hear and respond to the gracious invitation that has gone out. And so maybe even more than we think, our salvation is from first to last a work of grace. Mm, thanks be to God. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at our Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 